Today, let's go ahead and jump into our sermon for this morning, our teaching. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 1, and then read through verse 12. Today, we're concluding our summer sermon series on the Beatitudes. And so today, we're looking at the last Beatitude, uh, which is there down in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. So, finishing up the Beatitude series today, it's been, uh, it's been a great time, uh, and so next week we'll start in our next series. So, if you want to follow along, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you or you're having trouble finding it, that's okay, because we'll have the passage up on the screens next to me, so you can follow along there. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 1. So in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these are the Beatitudes. We've been walking through them slowly over the past eight weeks or so, taking them one by one. Um, but, you know, as I say every week, I like to read them in context so we can remember everything that leads up to uh, what we're looking at that week. And today, like I said, we're finishing this series, concluding this series on the Beatitudes by looking at the last one, which is actually a couple of verses, uh, 10 through 11, on blessed are the persecuted or blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted, uh, slandered against, reviled, uh, as it says in, in Luke, and so on. I told you guys this before, and you know this if you've been uh, with us this, through this series this summer, or maybe you've been following along online and joining us now. Um, you know that this has been a really, really challenging series, right? The Beatitudes, and it is an extremely challenging set of uh, passages to go through because of the high standard that Christ has for his community of disciples who are going to follow him, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Week by week, we've been looking at these and, and, and then matching them up against our own lives uh, for those of us who are you know, Christians following Christ and just seeing you know, often how far away we are from really living out as individuals and as a community the type of life uh, and the type of character that Jesus describes here in the Beatitudes. You know, and I've told you before how... <clears throat> As a preacher, it's always difficult to stand before people and deliver a sermon, you know, explain a passage of Scripture where on the inside, you, through studying that week and even delivering and teaching, uh, know just how far short you fall, right, in, in what you are preaching on. And so, and, and, I, and I told you guys before, I have never felt that, that, that like sense of I'm such a hypocrite as I preach this, right? I have never felt that as intensely as I have uh, since going through the Beatitudes. 
They're challenging. They are incisive. But perhaps none of them is quite as challenging. Perhaps none of them cuts to the heart and is as revealing as the last one, the one that we're looking at today, which is blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are insulted and reviled and slandered because on Christ's account. This one, I say, uh, might be the climax of the, the challenges and, and, um, and the incisiveness, like I said before, the, of what we have here in the Beatitudes. So let's look at this last one as we finish the series today. We're going to look at first um, who are the persecuted, and then why are they persecuted, and then what will be their reward. So as we've done every week in this series, we're going to ask some pretty basic questions to make sure that we understand what Jesus meant whenever he taught these words and not just read into it or lay upon it what we might assume Jesus meant, right? We want to know what he meant, not what we just assume. So who are the persecuted? Why are they persecuted? And then what will be their reward? So let's begin with who are the persecuted? The first thing that we need to note about this last beatitude is that Jesus does not say, Bless, just blessed are the persecuted, and then end it there. He does not say, just blessed are those who are disliked, and then end it there, or blessed are those who are slandered against, and end it there. He has some qualifying words which come after the persecuted, or after the reviled and slandered and spoken falsely about. In other words, he has qualifying terms. So the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus is not saying blessed are all the persecuted. There is one type, there is one group, subsection of the persecuted that Jesus is referring to here. Who is that? Here, we're going to look at this We're going to come at this with a couple of different angles to understand what Jesus is saying about who the persecuted are who are blessed. Here's the first thing I want you to see. And this is something good for us to to really draw, draw out now as we conclude this series, which is that the Beatitudes have a structure to them. You know, uh, we, we've been seeing this as we moved on from the earlier Beatitudes into the later ones. And, and I pointed out last week how you can see that there's a logic to the Beatitudes, how one of them, uh, you know, feeds into the next one and so on. But now as we're at the bottom and we can look at them as a whole with better understanding, what we can see is that there's a structure to the Beatitudes. You can look at them as broken into two sections. In the first section of the Beatitudes, you have what, what I can say are the Beatitudes of emptiness. They're the Beatitudes of emptiness because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All of these uh, blesses, all these Beatitudes, whether it's being poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mourning, are, are, are things of emptiness, aren't they? Right? The, the most obvious ones being poor in spirit, Right? That means that you are not rich in spirit. It means that you are not uh, someone who sees yourself as morally wealthy, but on the other hand, morally and spiritually bankrupt. So that would be empty. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Those are terms of emptiness there. So you have this section of the Beatitudes of emptiness, right? But they finish with this, righteousness, right? Jesus says, hungering and thirsting, for righteousness. So they finish there with righteousness. That's how we can denote the first section, because there's a second section that finishes with righteousness as well. But this time, these are the Beatitudes, not of emptiness, but of fullness. 
Okay, because Jesus goes from saying, uh, talking about the poor in spirit who see their need for God's grace, for the Holy Spirit's power and transformation in their life. They mourn over their, their sin. They have been made humble. They're not spiritually proud. And so they hunger and thirst for righteousness, only the righteousness that God can give. And then what is the promise for those people? They will be filled, right? So what's the, what's the, the, uh, the, the, re, the reaction, the response, the conclusion, uh, the consequence of that? Well, then they're made merciful. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness and then are filled with it are merciful people. And then they are people who are made pure in heart. You see, these are beatitudes that are, are, are beatitudes of fullness. Being filled with righteousness, it makes this type of a person, one who is merciful, one who is pure in heart, one who has been given the power to be a peacemaker. And then here's where we see, once again, that, that turn that denotes for us the, the conclusion of the second section, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And so here's what we see. The Beatitudes of emptiness leading to righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst, they are empty, being filled with righteousness. It leading to a changed life of mercy, of purity in heart, of being peacemakers. And then that righteousness being manifested in their life through these ways, the world responding to it in persecution. So when we say, okay, Jesus is not talking about blessed or all the persecuted, but only a certain kind, who is he talking about? Persecution for those who are living a life of purity, living a life of mercy, living a life of peacemaking, living a life of righteousness, because that is what defines righteousness. They are filled, and then they are, they are made merciful, pure peacemakers. So that's the first angle that we can look at this and see, okay, that's who Jesus is talking about. And then the second way is by looking very clearly at the words that he says here. In, in, in um, verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then in verse 11, he says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And so Jesus very, very clearly here says, blessed are the persecuted who are persecuted for what? who are slandered or reviled for what? For righteousness and because of him. You see, we have an insight here, not only into what he's talking about, but righteousness itself, which is that true righteousness and a person who is truly righteous is something that is always lived out in relationship with Jesus. There's no such thing as building righteousness in our life, a character of righteousness becoming more like God without a close, dedicated walk with Jesus. There is no growing in righteousness without a bowing down to Christ as Lord. There is no righteousness without the Holy Spirit being poured into your life, giving you the power to become righteous. True righteousness always happens in relationship with Jesus, which is why we have blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness, say, blessed are you whenever you're persecuted for my sake. Why? Because it means the same thing. They go together. And so here's where we have our answer. If Jesus is not talking about just anyone who might be persecuted for any reason, but only for those who are a specific group, who is he talking about? And this is the first point. The righteous. He is speaking about the righteous who walk with Jesus and are known by their mercy, purity, and peaceableness. Whenever Jesus says, <clears throat> whenever he says, blessed are the persecuted, these are those that he is talking about. He is talking about the righteous who walk with Jesus, who walk with him, 
and are known by their mercy, purity, and peacefulness. Now, <clears throat> we can look all over the globe today at, 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 at many um, tragic and egregious and awful forms of persecution. And praise God that we are not, that, that, it, that it's likely that many of us in here are not experiencing what our brothers and sisters across the globe are experiencing, right? Praise God for that, and, and, and may he continue to give us grace and in, 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 um, relieving us from that kind of, of trial, right? Yet, it is likely that, that many of us, while we might not experience the kind of persecution which involves the shedding of blood, right, and the loss of life that we see in other places, it is very likely that many of us in here might experience some of the other things that Jesus lists, because he says persecution, right? That, that's like the most extreme form of opposition, right? Where there's, lo- there's shedding of blood, loss of life, uh, severe suffering, right? Imprisonment and so on. But then he also includes, he says, those who insult you, those who mock you, especially where you compare this with what he says in Luke chapter 6 in the parallel passage. He says, those who revile you, those who slander against you, right? And so whenever you come to some of these other terms, we might be able to identify with some of these and say, okay, you know, I, I've been reviled before. I've been misunderstood. I've been slandered. Uh, people have spoken falsely against me because of, this, because of some of the things that I have, the, the truth that I've stood upon, right? And so just let me ask you this. If you have experienced one of these forms of opposition or persecution, right, in your life, whatever kind it might be, if Jesus says, blessed only to those who have been slandered, revived, or whatever else, because of righteousness' sake, because they have lived a life of mercy, peacemaking, and purity, do you fall into that category? Jesus does not say, uh, Jesus does not have a beatitude for those who are just jerks. Because some of us, uh, we laugh, right? But some of us might have been reviled. Some of us might have been excluded, some of us might have been pushed out, had relationships broken. Some of us might have had, you know, all these different hosts of issues that we can read here in Matthew 5 or in Luke 6 and say, I've experienced that. But you didn't necessarily experience it because of Jesus. You didn't experience it because you were being a peacemaker, right? Here's the thing. You might have even been going into it on, on the right grounds, right? It is very possible for us to have the truth, but then use it as a club, Right? You might have been standing on the right grounds, but not filled with the Spirit of Christ. Maybe this was in person. Maybe this was online, right? It's interesting to me today how there's this, on on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever else, how we see this strange phenomenon of people who love to boast being blocked, right? Oh, I I attacked so-and-so. You know, usually some kind of public figure. I was calling him out about this or that, and I got blocked. You know, oh, look at me. I got blocked. Like, no, that you, <laughs> that's not something to brag about, right? Like, you, you might have been, like, somewhat in the right, you might have been on the right side of the argument, but you were not acting in the spirit of Christ, right? Have you, have you been that kind of person who you've been blocked, whether it's on social media or in real life, in relationships, and then felt pride over it, but you weren't blocked because you had a hunger and thirst for righteousness that was filled and made you merciful. When was the last time that you were blocked for being merciful? When was the last time that you were blocked, like I said, online or in real life, because you were truly being pure in heart 
and striving to live at peace with all those among you? Or was it just because you were a jerk? Was it just because you had no self-control? Was it just because you were feeling superior? Right? This is something that we all need to examine in ourselves. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, right? For righteousness sake. And he just showed us in, this, in that second half of the Beatitudes what he means by righteousness sake. So let us examine ourselves in that way. So those are who he is talking about here. Those are those who are blessed. But let's ask this question. Why are they persecuted? Because I just laid out for you, right? Uh, the righteous, those who walk with Jesus, their life, they are those who are merciful. They are those who are pure in heart. They are those who are peacemakers. And so it leads to a pretty obvious logical question, which is, if I'm living that way, why would I be persecuted? Because I think many of us might think to ourselves, you know what, I might start having, <laughs> I might start being persecuted less if we start living that way. For some of you guys, it might be true, right? If you fall in, into that category of, uh, of not so much doing it, right, in, in righteousness, but for, you know, some, some, some less than noble reasons, it, it's true, right? Um, but why would anyone in the world be offended or persecute a community of people who truly are living out this righteousness of mercifulness, purity in heart, uh, power to make peace, and so on, right? Why would anybody persecute that? Here's why. It's important, so important for us to see this. Here's why. This is the second major point. The righteous are persecuted because they serve one master. The righteous that Jesus talks about here are persecuted because they serve one master. It's right there in Jesus' words in verse 11. He says, he, he says, blessed are you, right, all these things because of me. Because of our allegiance and loyalty to Christ, we will receive opposition from the world in various degrees of severity, right, and so on, and in different manifestations, but we will receive that opposition because we serve one master. Let me give you a couple of other insights into this, into seeing how it is because of this aspect that Christians, the righteous, serve one master, that we receive the opposition of the world. Let me show you the first insight. The first insight into this is in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, verses, starting verse 13, uh, it's at the end of one of Jesus' parables, and he's speaking to a crowd of people, but he is especially in a um, situation where he's in opposition to the Pharisees, to the ruling uh, religious leaders. And he says this at the end of his parable. He says, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So there's Jesus saying, you can only serve one master. And in that case, the other example is money. Listen to the reaction of the Pharisees. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, right? So who were subjects of the other master. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. See, so here's where we see persecution or opposition in the form of scoffing. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The righteous are persecuted because they serve one master. And we see this in Luke 16 where Jesus says, you can only serve one master, right? That being God. And the world responds in opposition because of this. Number one, 
because they were lovers of other idols. That's what we see. The Pharisees were scoffing because, as it says in, in Luke, they were scoffing because they were lovers of money. Jesus says to his disciples and to the world listening to him, you have a choice. You will only serve one God. You will only serve one master, right? So will you give all of your allegiance, all of your obedience? Will you give your life over to God or will you give it over to idols? Will you give it over to me, Christ is your Lord, or will you give it over to false gods? That is the choice that he put before them, saying that his followers will only follow him as their master. But those who are lovers of idols and false gods will be opposed to those who refuse to bend the knee to their false gods and their idols. So that is the first reason that the world opposes the righteous, because they are lovers of the idols that Christians will refuse to worship. That's the first reason. The second reason that we can see an insight that we get from Luke 16 is this, that they scoff, persecute, revile, whatever else, in a desire to justify themselves. Whenever the world is challenged by their idol worship, because there's a community of Christians or, or Jesus disciples who refuse to live the lifestyles and worship their idols, they are challenged by their false worship. Right, their false worship is challenged by the presence of the Christian community. They love their false idol and their false god. And so in an attempt to justify themselves, they will scoff. They will revile. They will attempt to do whatever they can to make themselves feel superior and justify their false worship. That's the second thing that Jesus says to them. So we see they scoff because they're lovers of money. And Jesus says to them, you are trying to justify yourself. That's why you are scoffing at me right now. The world will oppose the righteous, and the righteous community's refusal to bend the knee to the idols of the world because they love their false worship and they desire to justify themselves. Let me give you another example where Jesus explains this, that Christians are those who only serve one master and how that leads to persecution. Jesus says something very similar. You'll see how it's similar. Jesus says something very similar to what we just saw in Luke 16 and Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, in verses 20 through 21, there's this moment where he's challenged by the Pharisees and Sadducees. They come to him and they say, Jesus, are we supposed to pay taxes or not? They're trying to trap him into, being, into saying something that would then uh, cause the Roman authorities to come in and, and arrest him as a revolutionary leader. Right? So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get him to say, no, you don't pay taxes. So the Romans come in and arrest him. And so here's what he does. He asks for a denarius, a coin, and he says to them, whose inscription, whose likeness is on this? And they tell him Caesar's. And so then he says this in verse 21. He says, then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Here is what Jesus is saying, and we need to understand this in the context that he was saying it. In the context that he was saying this, in living in the, this area of the world, in this time, whenever the Roman Empire was in control and Caesar was the emperor, sitting at the top of the Roman Empire, Caesar as an emperor was a totalitarian figure. What that means is, is that he did not just rule with absolute authority over, over, uh, over the economy and over the military and everything on, but he also sought to rule with absolute authority over the hearts and minds of his subjects. You see, he did not just claim control over their possessions, but he also claimed control over their personal heart and allegiances. Every citizen of the Roman Empire was required to swear allegiance with the oath that Caesar is Lord. 
right? Caesar is Lord. So not only do I live underneath this authority in, in my business or, or, or whatever else in my city, but I also live in allegiance to him with my heart as my Lord. And then you have the Christian community that comes along. And Jesus says this statement here in Luke, uh, sorry, Matthew 22, verse 21, that you are to render the things that are Caesar's, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And here is what Jesus is saying here, which is absolutely revolutionary, not, not just in the Bible, but in the world. He's saying Caesar's authority is limited. He is not Lord. Only God is Lord. He is the only master that you will serve with your ultimate allegiance. So give to Caesar the things that properly belong in the realm of his authority, and everything else belongs to God. Now, in a context where you were supposed to see everything in your life belonging to the Caesar who was Lord, that was a recipe for persecution. Because now, in the, whenever we see in the Gospels, and whenever Christians would go out living their life, and they would declare, on the other hand, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord, they were committing an act of treason. Because they refused to bend the knee to one of the false idols and false gods of their culture. But instead, in the purity of heart that comes from being filled with the righteousness of God, only bend the knee and bow down before the one Lord and Master, who is Jesus Christ. So you see, the Christians in the Roman Empire then were not persecuted because they took care of not only their own widows and poor, but also the widows and poor of the world. They were not persecuted because they built schools and hospitals. They were not persecuted because of the, the, the purity of their lifestyles and the amount of love that they had in their community. They were not persecuted because of what they were doing, but because of what they refused to do which was bow the knee to Caesar. Do you understand now why the lifestyle of the righteous who resolutely decide that they will only serve one master might then lead to the revile and hate and slander and persecution of the world? It is not because of all, it is not because of the beautiful and attractive things we might do, but it is because of the things that we will not do. It is because we will not bow down the knee to their idols. We will not bow down the knee to their idols, celebrate what they say ought to be celebrated, and we will not be compliant with their uh, modes of enforcement to, crack down, to, to uh, enforce their idols upon society. It is at these points, whenever we won't do those things, that we will receive the opposition of the world, in whatever form it might come, whether it comes through slander, as Jesus says, saying every false thing they can about you on account of me, whether it comes through that way, whether it comes through being silenced, right, whether it comes through legal action and whatever, whatever possible means, right, because we will not bow the knee. But here's the thing, as I was considering this and this truth that, we, that, that springs out of these passages and that we can flesh out, I, I thought this to myself, will many of us be persecuted? If that is what invites persecution, a, a resolute, dedicated allegiance to only Christ as Lord. And so then looking at our lives, 
and, and identifying in our lives the way that we will, in contrast to the rest of the culture around us, not bend our knee and not, and not join in with the, the celebration or the words of affirmation, the various idols of our culture, right? And those things are the things that will then invite persecution. Will many of us be persecuted? Or will many of us just go along? As I said before, Yes, we're not living in a and praise the Lord. We are not living in a situation like what we see in, in many, many other areas of the world right now, where we're where just doing this, gathering for church, might potentially invite, whether it is you know, the, the, the thugs of the government coming in to shut it down, or the guerrilla bands of terrorists to, to uh, create bloodshed. You know, we do not live in a situation like that. Praise the Praise God for that, right? And, and may he spare us from something like that and our children and grandchildren, right? Praise God for that. But do not assume that we live in a, uh, in a situation of neutrality. There is all kinds of pressure on you day in and day out through every single form that it can, whether it be through the government, whether it be through the media, whether it be through the institutions of society, which have been completely uh, been handed over to the idols of our culture, there is a pressure upon you to just be quiet and go along with the flow, right? And how many of us will resist? How many of us Whenever we are pressured to celebrate what the world celebrates and affirm what the world tells us that we should affirm, we'll resist and disobey what they say. How many of us, whenever Caesar comes in and tries to claim aspects over our lives which only belong to God, will civilly disobey? Friends, you know, whenever you read church history and you read the history of persecutions, you see this theme again and again and again and again. Whenever the church is persecuted, it is not over something that they have done. It is over their cultural or civil disobedience. It is over their resistance to giving in to the tyrants of the world, whether that be tyrants that sit in the halls of the government or tyrants that uh, control the institutions of the culture. How many of us will be persecuted or how many of us will just go along? We'll, we'll, we'll start to believe that we can serve two masters. So the righteous, those who are in relationship with Jesus, it will re- occasionally be required to act out political and social disobedience. How many of us are ready? How many of us perhaps have already not been living out that kind of disobedience or resistance whenever we ought to or should have. Let me ask you, when cultural or political tyrants attempt to enforce their idols, will the righteous resist? You see, the great challenge to us whenever Jesus says, blessed are the right, or those, or those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and on, and on account of me, the great challenge here is, Will I even be worthy of being in that group? Or on that day, will, my, will, my, will I give in, right? What we understand here is that resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. But who will be willing? Like I said, I'm afraid that there will be many who will easily comply. Why will they easily comply? Because they have not counted the cost. Because they have not counted the cost. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean in the sense we normally mean that in terms of they have not counted the cost of following Christ. 
I mean because they have not counted the, cro- the cost of severing their allegiance to him. They have not counted the cost of what they are giving up whenever they choose acceptance over the world, over allegiance to Christ. They have not counted the, cro- the cost of the reward that they are abdicating whenever they choose bending the knee to the idols of the culture rather than only bending the knee to Christ as Lord. We have not counted the cost because here's what Jesus says in, in Matthew 5 and in Luke 6 and what he says again and again here. He says, blessed are those. And, and in verse 11, he says, you are blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, as I was reflecting on this and meditating on it, that, that word just, just blew up in my mind, right? And, and I realized just how, how incredible it is because here's what Jesus is saying. Though the world is stacked against you, Right? Though the, the efforts of Satan and the insidiousness and, and destruction of sin and the darkness of the world and the calamity of, 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 uh, of the world and the suffering of life, though all these things are stacked against you, whenever you stand in allegiance with me, you are blessed. How incredible is that? Not, he doesn't say you are blessed whenever you are delivered from these things. He doesn't say you are blessed wherever you don't experience these things, right? Those are good, right? Those are gifts if you don't experience persecution. But he says, even when, right, you are, you are in the storm, and rather than falling down or running away or, 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 or bowing down to idols in cowardice, you stand, blessed are you. Isn't that incredible? He's saying, yes, the world is dark. Yes, life in Christ will be challenging. Yes, there will be suffering. But there is an inherent opportunity and good to steadfast resistance in the face of the world's opposition. That's why he says, blessed. He's saying that there is something inherently good about it. He's saying, if you, if you fall down, if you run away, if you, if you give up that resistance or that, that civil or cultural disobedience in that, in that sense, he says you are abandoning not only that reward, but you are abandoning an, an inherent opportunity to do something good. What blessed means is that we have an opportunity and responsibility whenever we are called upon and whenever we are put into those situations to stand upon the truth and righteousness and that whatever we do, it is good. And that is what I mean by not counting the cost. Because then if we let the, if, if, we, if we don't resist, if we just, if we, if we don't be, if we don't live in the righteousness that we ought to, we have given up that opportunity that God has placed before us to be called and placed among the blessed. That great and wonderful opportunity there is to be among those saints who, who will hear one day from Christ our Lord, well done. He said, you see, he says, blessed are you because the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Whenever the kingdom of the world rejects you, you can rejoice, you can stand fast, you can take advantage of that opportunity and stand firm because you, have a, you know that you have a place in another kingdom. Whenever we are called upon and whenever it, it, our, our, our allegiance to Christ requires us to resist tyrants in whatever form they might take and to resist and to stand firm against the opposition of the world, we know that we have a greater reward for us. 
the persecuted righteous will be rewarded with a weight of glory. Citizenship and a place in God's kingdom and a reward beyond all measure, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, where he says, for our light and momentary suffering is not to be, is not worth comparing with the immeasurable weight of glory that we will experience on the other side. And so friends, whether it's just in the small ways in your life, whether, whether it's in real life or whether it's on social media, whether it's in your workplace or in your family or wherever else, whenever we in our small ways give up the opportunity to stand in righteousness, no matter how the world may oppose us, no matter how we may be reviled and slandered, friends, you have not counted the cost of what you are giving up. You are giving up a weight of glory in exchange for a small momentary affliction. That's not even worth comparing with it. So do not be so foolish as to not count the cost. And then, after you've counted the cost, and whether it be in ways that are small or great, whether it be in ways that, that invite just the misunderstanding of people or the outright mockery and slandering and reviling and blocking and, and, and political action, whatever else it may be of those. When, once you have made that choice, then do what Jesus says, both in Matthew 5 and in Luke 6. He says, rejoice. He says, then when you are persecuted, when you are reviled or you're slandered and you're misunderstood, whenever they come for you to lock up your family in prison, whatever they do, he says, on that day and in that moment, remember that you are blessed. Remember that the kingdom of the world is opposing you, uh, has nothing compared to the kingdom that you will belong to one day in that way to glory. He says, and then just rejoice. He says, be glad. Now, here's the thing. If whenever we are opposed and we have the opportunity to stand in righteous resistance to tyrants, like I said, whether they be political or cultural tyrants, right? In that moment, there's an opportunity for us there. There's an opportunity for you to not just know that you will be rewarded one day, but to change the state of things now. That's why he says, blessed are you. When you stand and you are persecuted. You know why? Because... There are those who will see how you are persecuted and they will wonder how you endure and you, and you go through what you go through with such a hope and joy as you do. They will want to know and then they too will follow. And then there will be others who will, continue to perse- who, who will continue to persecute. They will continue to reject the truth of the gospel and God will deal with them. But Jesus says that there is an opportunity for you if you will stand. And you know what? Today... And in the future, as it, is, as it is required of a, I'm not trying to prophesy here, but, but as it will be more and more and more required of us to stand in cultural and political disobedience and in peaceable resistance, right? If we're going to do so, not just as a responsibility to righteousness, but also as understanding that we are taking advantage of the opportunity that we have to to change the state of things in the world by our stand, do you know what's the best way to do that? With a smile on your face. Here's what I hope for my generation as we continue into adulthood. What I hope for my generation and for my children's generation is that we odd Christians who refuse to bend the knee to the idols of our culture 
and resist in various ways and, and, and take with that resistance all of the opposition that comes with it, we might become the kind of people who are known for standing for freedom, who are standing for allegiance to our God, right? who are standing for righteousness, but also the most happy. Because, wherever you, because if you try to go out into the world today and you try to persuade them into the beauty of following Christ, if you try to persuade them into how the kingdom of heaven is so much better and worth receiving the vial of anything of the kingdom of the world, if you try to go out there and do all that, mopey and, and woe is me, right? And, 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 and negative and with no hope in your soul at all, how, how effective are you going to be? I think that Christians, while we're following Christ and as we are living a community and as we, as we strive to peaceably live among all of our neighbors, we ought to be the happiest people in the world. And where we are, we persecute and we rejoice. I think that we might then not just be able to look forward to our future reward one day, but see the kingdom of God here today as well. Let's pray. Lord, we, Lord, I know that, my, that in myself and looking at my own life, looking at my own heart, looking at the, um, the fickleness that is inside of me and looking at the cowardice that is inside of me, Lord, that, that as I read this beatitude, this conclusion to your, your magisterial list here, I see a great challenge for myself. Will I be among those blessed? And perhaps in the ways in my past that I thought that I was among those blessed, but really I was just acting in my own need to feel morally superior or right, or I was just being a jerk. Lord, I see just how far I fall below the kind of blessedness that you talk about here. So, Father, would you first cultivate and work up in our hearts a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Lord, may our desire for the righteousness that only comes from you and may our desire for a closer walk with you be as visceral and as real and as compelling as the hunger that we feel for food and as the thirst that we experience for drink. So that we are driven to chase after that righteousness and to plead for it and to make it a priority in our life and that being filled with the righteousness which is your promise to those who come to you in, in their hunger and thirst that being filled with your righteousness would then make us people who are merciful who are humble who are pure in heart we have a heart and a desire that is only for you Lord who are peacemakers who are able to live uh, humbly and who are able to live at peace within, in the midst of a world that does not understand them, Lord. And then, and then even beyond all of our efforts, whenever we are opposed and misunderstood and persecuted, would that righteousness then fill us with the courage that it takes to stand firm? Standing firm, Lord, knowing that in our standing firm, we are bringing glory to you and we are evidencing our place in your kingdom of heaven, but that we are also taking advantage of the opportunity that there is to present a testimony to the world. 
Lord, all the while doing it with a smile and rejoicing and being happy and knowing that our future and our reward and our security and our health and our wealth and whatever else we might depend upon and need to live is secure in you. Because we are living in the midst of a war that has already been won. We are just at the, we, we are just living faithfully in the times trying to be like heralds declaring to the world to submit to our king while there is still time. Father, we pray that you would make us these kind of people in our own individual lives and as a community and as a generation. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.